Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Blood cells fight infection, carry oxygen throughout your body, and control bleeding. What happens when things go awry? Understanding your complete blood count, hematologic cancers, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. Hello, and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, tonight's Prairie Doc host. Thank you for joining us as we continue to provide our viewers with health information based on science, built on trust for 21 seasons. Tonight's topic is blood cancer, detection, diagnosis, and treatment. Joining us tonight on the campus of South Dakota State University is Dr. Javier Andrade Gonzalez from Avera Medical Group Hematology, Transplant, and Cellular Therapy, Sioux Falls. Welcome, Dr. Andrade. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So to start out with, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I'm, I was born and raised in Ecuador. That's where I did my medical school there. Different weather than what we're experiencing <laughs> yeah. right now. Um, there in medical school, I grew an interest on genetics, on how cancer develops and how we can treat it. And that's where my interest in hematology started to grow. Now then, I. Ecuador doesn't have training in hematology, so I first went to Spain to get some treatment, uh, some training, and that, that's where I grew my interest in stem cell transplants and cellular therapy and immunotherapy. And I went back to Ecuador and practiced, but I really looked inside and said, well, this is something I really want to do and I want to get training on. Ecuador doesn't offer it and neither does Spain, so that's where my journey in the U.S. began. So I trained in Chicago for my first years of training then went to Minnesota for uh, my hematology fellowship. That's where I really uh, took a deep dive in stem cell transplant and uh, treatment of blood disorders. And now I'm here. To South Dakota. To South Dakota. Well, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And, and after, uh, after a long winter, I'm sure you're looking forward to nicer <laughs> weather here. Uh, cold winter of our very warm people. We felt really welcome. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, well, first off, you're a, so you're a hemoc doctor, hematology yes. oncology. That's what right. what does that mean? Yeah. Well, hematology is the study of blood disorders. That includes blood cancers, but also clotting disorders, bleeding disorders, some problems with blood counts. Oncology is the study of um, solid tumors, say lung cancer, breast cancer, or colon cancer. Now we all, in training, we get training for both. We are trained as a hematologist and an oncologist. But now the field is advancing so much that we're starting to differentiate. We're starting to uh, specialize, so to speak. So there's some folks that uh, predominantly do hematology, like myself, that means I treat all blood disorders, blood cancers, clotting and bleeding. And there's some others that have decided to specialize in treatment of more solid tumors, so more on the breast cancer or colon cancer side of things. So I am a hematologist, and that's what I specialize in. You're the true hemoc doctor. <laughs> well, I tried to be. So um, 
when we talk about blood cancers, yeah. I mean, there's a variety of things there too. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are made up in the blood. That's right. So what, what, what are some of the types of blood cancer? Mm -hmm. Well, there are several different types, and I would try to explain it by categorizing, because we think about them as where did the normal cell become cancerous? So we have, for example, bone marrow cancer, so what we call myeloid disorders. Those are cancers that start in our bone marrow. For example, acute myeloblastic leukemia would be one of the more common ones chronic myeloid leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome. If you hear that word myeloid, that means that cancer probably originated from the bone marrow. Where the red blood cells or blood cells are made. Exactly. White cells, red cells, and platelets are all made in that same spot. And so they're being overproduced. Most of the times overproduced. Sometimes there's just a, some mutations or cancers that actually stop production and the blood counts drop instead of go up or they drop below what they should be. The other big category is what we call lymphoid cancers. So they're cancers that started our lymphatic system. Um, lymphomas are the most common ones. You've heard about Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, those two big categories. And then we have, I guess the more common one would be disorders of plasma cells. That a plasma cell is an immune cell that can travel around our body especially our bones, and it produces antibodies. But it, when it becomes cancerous, um, it opens up a big category of blood cancers. The most common one would be um, uh, multiple myeloma. There are other ones that are maybe less frequent, but those are the big three categories that we think about. Sure, sure. So, and just to even go back a little bit there, you know, obviously most people know about our blood circulatory system with our mm -hmm. heart pumping, pumping the blood and yeah. the vessels and in, down in the capillaries. But when we think about the lymphatic system, mm -hmm. you know, where it could become a lymphoma, but the lymph, right. what is the lymphatic system? Yeah. Well, you'd think about it as a defense system or a defense checkpoint. You see, what happens is our heart pumps up the blood and it gives the nutrients to all our body, but say I have lymph nodes or a lymphatic system in my arm, so the blood gets here, delivers the nutrients, and then the lymphatic system takes everything and passes it through our lymph nodes. Now, the lymph nodes are areas of immune cells. Think about it as a security checkpoint. All the cells, are, everything is going through that lymph node and saying, is there something here that could attack us? Is there any bacteria or viruses that could go through and, and attack the whole system? If the answer is yes, our immune cells are there and start attacking uh, those foreign um, organisms. So think about it as a defense system. There are cells there that need to divide rapidly. So if you wanna defend that body, you better be ready. So those cells can divide quickly. Sometimes that's a weakness, because that's where DNA errors can happen and some of these cells can become cancerous. Yeah. Now as a primary care doc, I, I certainly see people that have different viruses or infections going on and they might notice an enlarged lymph node. Exactly. Yeah. And so when does, and, and sometimes people notice an enlarged lymph node for a month or more and, mm -hmm. and sometimes in their concern, is this, is this right? When, when, when does something like that become concerning? Yeah, well, it's an excellent question. Um, the normal process would be, well, if you're attacking something that's transient, say a virus, that lymph node 
where the cells inside that lymph node would start to divide, that lymph node naturally gets larger. It's attacking something that's not supposed to be there. But when that threat uh, is cleared, that lymph node is supposed to go back to a normal size. So when that process is not happening, so you have an enlarged lymph node and it's not going down, sometimes it, you know, we, we have a regular sort of a rule of thumb, it's just not going down by two to four weeks and there's something here that may not be an infection and there's some things that would need to be checked. Also if you'd imagine, well, some virus comes to the lymph node and it starts growing fast, well that can hurt. So generally when lymph nodes are um, hurtful, when you uh, touch them, that's usually a sign that there might be something benign here and not necessarily cancer. However, when things start growing slowly and there's time to adjust, there's not much pain involved. So when there's something enlarged on a large lymph node for weeks that does not hurt, that can't be moved, that, that could be concerning and something to be checked for. Yeah, and now some children, especially in school and daycare, yeah. they're exposed to virus and virus at one yeah. on top of another. Yes. And yeah. so sometimes that can cause some lymph nodes to be enlarged for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell me about it. We have two kids and you know, <laughs> they bring viruses home many times. Yeah, viruses are uh, the mo one of the most common causes for swollen um, lymph nodes. So not all swollen lymph nodes are cancerous, but it's about the, the behavior or the patterns here. The lymph node that's swollen and it's just not going down for weeks and weeks, well, uh, then we have to get um, a look into it. Sure. Sounds good. Um, so what are some of the warning signs or symptoms that someone should pay attention to in, that they might have a, a type of blood cancer? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's tough to answer sometimes because it depends on the blood cancer that we're talking about. You see, there's some blood cancers that are very slow growing, and some of them don't even cause symptoms, and that can sound scary. Sometimes we pick them up because we're doing blood work for something else, or you were doing an annual visit, you got some blood work done, and we noticed something. Depending on which cancer we're talking about, up to 50% may not have symptoms. So that just highlights the importance, well, we really should get our yearly checkups and make sure we have our excuse me, our cancer screenings in check. And when some of these blood cancers cause symptoms, it depends on the disease. There are some that more, are more aggressive than others. For instance, if we're talking about acute leukemias, the acute word means there's something happening fast. So these cancer cells are dividing rapidly, divide, divide, divide. That takes up a lot of energy from that person suffering it. So people tend to feel tired. People tend to have uh, unexplained weight loss. They were not even trying and clothes start to not feel the way they used to be. Um, that releases a lot of energy, so unexplained fevers. Uh, some, those, some of those are the symptoms. And night sweats. And night sweats, that's very common too. Yeah. Now, we're talking about leukemias, that can originate in the bone marrow, and like you said, that's where we produce normal cells. So when cancer is occupying that space, our normal cells go down. So if our white cells, our immune cells go down, we're open to infections. Mm. So infection after infection with no good reason, um, that can be a symptom. If our red cells drop, our red cells are in charge of giving us oxygen and energy. If that drops, oh boy, people are gonna feel fatigued. So 
fatigue is something I commonly see. And then we have platelets, where platelets are in charge of clotting. If our platelets go down, then people are at a risk of bleeding. So sometimes unexplained bleeding, bruising, that can be a sign of a blood cancer happening in the background. Those are very well explained. I feel like I'm going to have a lot of viewers and my own patients that are worried they have cancer now. Because <laughs> yeah. these can be very common symptoms. Yes, it can be common symptoms. Now I would say blood cancers taken as a whole are rare. If we go by statistics, about 10% of all cancers diagnosed in the U.S. are blood cancers. So one out in 10, so that, that's rare. If we're talking about um, leukemias, or acute myeloid leukemia specifically, there are only about 20,000 cases, new cases diagnosed per year in the U.S. If you contrast that with, say, breast cancer, that's 2 million new cases diagnosed. Well, in general, these cancers are rare. If you have some of the symptoms, it's unlikely that you have that. In fact, I would quote um, the lifetime risk of having an acute leukemia. It's about 0.5 to 1%. So the risk is low, but that's not to say you should ignore symptoms. Right, right. So if some of, things, some of these things that we're talking about are starting to happen, don't hesitate. Talk to your doctor. There, uh, uh, there's some tests that we can do to make sure we rule those out. Excellent, yeah. Um, so let's say that you see your doctor for these symptoms. What tests might they do? Yeah. Well, the biggest one is take a good history. Take time to explain what you're feeling so your doctor can be better directed at what tests to do. For blood cancers, the uh, most common initial screening test is a blood test. You heard me say mo many of these cancers can affect the blood counts. So that's the first thing we're going to check. A complete blood count. Exactly. Or a CBC. Very common test. Exactly. We're going to test your white cell. What's the number? Uh, we're going to test your red cells or hemoglobin. We're going to test your platelets. Now, some of these cancers can divide rapidly and affect other organs. We'll, um, we'll test your kidney function. We'll test your liver function and see if there's anything abnormal about it. Some of these cancers can affect those. Now, once that's the initial screening test for blood tests. Now, we also talked about lymphomas, swollen lymph nodes. Well, we do similar tests. We're probably going to ask for some tests to rule out infections. Those would be more common causes of swollen lymph nodes. But once we are past that screening uh, part, then we go to more diagnostic tests or more definitive testing. And that would probably be um, with a, a blood smear that yeah. gets reviewed under a microscope by a hematopathologist. Exactly. Which leads us into our first uh, rolling. So a large portion of diagnosing blood cancer comes from behind the scenes with a hematopathologist. And Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke to one about his occupation. We're often referred to as the doctor's doctor. Because Dr. Douglas Lynch is a hematopathologist for Sanford Medical in Sioux Falls, and his job is to do the tedious work of finding cancer cells or disorders in the blood. I specialize in diagnosing things like leukemia, lymphoma, and other blood disorders, helping figure out why somebody's anemic or why their platelets might be low. So I spend a lot of my time looking at blood smears, bone marrow smears, and lymph nodes under the microscope. Dr. Lynch says blood cancer comes in a wide variety, from patients not knowing they have a blood cancer 
to a type of leukemia. They may be tired or fatigued, they may have infections, and then they do a blood smear and their counts may be low and we may not know that they have a blood cancer until we do a bone marrow biopsy and aspirate. He says when patients feel fatigued, they get their blood drawn and their blood is sent to the lab. So it'll start in the lab and my lab techs will run the, the sample through the instrument, get me the results. So we'll look at the hemoglobin, the platelet counts, those different things. The lab then sends a blood smear for Dr. Lynch to look at. I evaluate the morphology, which is basically what do the cells look like? Do they look normal? Are there enough of them there? And then I can look at that and then I can help direct what needs to occur next. If it is cancer, he tells the doctor the patient needs to report to oncology, hence the doctor's doctor. And then once we make that diagnosis, that patient then usually goes over to oncology. And then oncology is the one that's going to specialize in treating that diagnosis. In pathology, we don't really see patients. Dr. Lynch says they know how important a correct diagnosis is for the patient. Like I said, we don't see patients, but every case that comes through our department, we realize is a unique individual person, and we want to take care of that specimen, make sure the appropriate thing gets done, and they get the appropriate diagnosis, because their care really all hinges on that diagnosis. Thank you, Dr. Lynch, for explaining that uh, as a hematopathologist, as he said, we don't really see patients. So I appreciate him stepping up in front of the camera and, and doing that. And, and we went to uh, medical school together. So maybe that helped. Uh, wh why are hematopathologists important for us? Oh, they're critical for what we do. See, we can only get so, so much with the history that we take, the symptoms, and some of the testing we do. But what's critical is what we can look under a microscope, because there's several different types of cancer that can look similar. And likewise, boy, there are cancers that are in the same category of disorders, but are treated completely different. And that's where we need their help. We're trying to make sure, well, that we have the right diagnosis here. They also help us establish risk, because every time we diagnose one of these blood cancers, many times there's genetic testing involved that can help us assess, well, what are the risks here that this will be aggressive versus not aggressive. Some of these tests are run by our hematopathologists, so we really appreciate what they do. They're critical for what we do. So here we were, uh, someone had some symptoms. They saw their doctor. They had initial blood tests. Um, there was some concern on the test, yeah. so now they had a smear. The hematopathologist reviewed it and maybe saw a type of leukemia or lymphoma, yeah. a type of blood cancer. And then, um, what, what's the next step after that? I'll, I'll yeah. refer them to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, always, we're happy to see them. Um, what's going in the mind of a hematologist at this point is, well, number one, what's the diagnosis? What is this? And the second question is, well, how spread is it? So we use a combination of tests. Number one would be, we need a biopsy. You're gonna hear this word a lot from your hematologist. We want to look at the tissue that's affected and look under a microscope. So for some of these cancers, we do a bone marrow biopsy. We have bone marrow in every bone of our body, but especially the pelvic bone or the back of our hips. So that's where we go We take with a needle. We take a small piece of that bone out and look under a microscope looking for cancers. Now imagine we were talking about a 
someone with lymphoma, swollen lymph nodes. Yeah. Well, we go there and then we have that swollen lymph node, we take a small piece out and then look under a microscope and try to first confirm the diagnosis, then tell me exactly, well, which lymphoma it is. In fact, there are about 60 different subtypes. So we have to know, well, which one are we dealing with? So that's helped us try to answer that first question. What cancer is this cancer, yes or no, and what type? And the other is, well, how spread is it? Then we go to imaging and scans. One we use a lot is called a PET scan. That uses a radio tracer that will go into the vein, uses sugar, and that helps locate areas of cancer and inflammation, and it lights up. So it can tell us, well, how spread is this, and uh, what are, what's the best way to address it? Yeah. And so, um, so what, what ages are, are predominant for like a leukemia? Mm -hmm. Well, they vary um, and depends on the leukemia we're talking about. So one of the more common one is acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL that has two different ages where this could happen. The initial oh, big um, incidence would be around that five to 10 years of age. That's where we see that incidence increase and then it goes down. And we don't see that a lot for the initial adulthood. And then around that 50 to 60 years of age, that incidence will start to go up again. And it's hard to explain for why that happens. There might be something genetic about it, something environmental that we still don't understand. But it can defer at what age do you expect this to happen. I'll say for myeloid leukemia, we usually don't see it during childhood or adulthood, and then start to see it a lot more once you're 60s or 70 years of age. So it, it can vary. Do we know why that is? We don't. We tend to think about it as, as we age, we must be acquiring some mutations in our blood cells or in, in, in our immune cells and their DNA that starts damaging the recipe for good functioning. And as we acquire more and more, there must be a time where those mutations are just too much. And that tells the cell, well, they start dividing uncontrollably, which is in essence what cancer is. Sure. But the reality is we still don't know. So what can we, can we do anything to help prevent that from happening or decrease our risk of, of yeah, having a blood yeah. cancer? Boy, it's an excellent question. I'm not sure we have the right answer here. Uh, we know a healthy lifestyle goes a long way. There's some things we can avoid to try to decrease our risk of cancer in general, for example. We know smoking can be linked to risk of cancers in general, including blood cancers. Yeah, not just lung cancer. Not just lung cancer. Um, exposure to radiation can also be detrimental. We know that exposure to radiation can predispose you to some of these blood cancers that we're talking about. Um, and so when we're talking about that, we're talking about x-rays and CT scans? Or yes, yep. Thankfully, x-rays have a low amount of radiation, but we always want to be careful. We want to use those tests when we really need it. CT scans or regular scans have a little bit more exposure to radiation, so the same principle applies. Uh, we want to minimize our exposure, and if we can avoid them, then we should. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so now you've, you've done a biopsy, and now you've uh, got a diagnosis. What, what, how are you thinking about what treatments you can do? Yeah. Well, it varies. I think the first thing we keep in mind is what's our goal of treatment? Unfortunately, some of these cancers can't be cured. They don't have a curative treatment. And that can tell us, well, which tool are we gonna use in our toolbox? There are some that can, 
And for the ones that can, we have to use intensive treatments. So I think that's one of our first um, decision points, or what's our goal going to be and how aggressive should we be? The second question is, well, what's the health of the person in front of me? There are some um, people that have many health challenges and that can limit the amount of treatments that we can do or the treatments that we can deliver. Imagine someone has not a great kidney function. Well, there's some treatments that will get filtered by the kidney and then excrete it. Well, if we can't do that, then that might build up in their bodies and cause a lot of toxicity. So it's about, well, what cancer are we dealing with? What's our goal going to be? And how intense can we be depending on, on the person is, uh, who the person is and what's their health like? Yeah. And so um, we, there's sometimes chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing with, with chemotherapy? Almost universally, the treatment for blood cancer is going to involve some form of chemotherapy. Many times we combine with immunotherapy or chemotherapy plus radiation therapy. It's more likely going to be a combination. Now, chemotherapy is a broad term to say we're going to use chemicals to treat so chemotherapy. Sure. It's, uh, the, the way these chemicals work would be by attacking the DNA of the cancer cell so that it's so damaged that it has no other choice but to destroy itself or die off. Uh, there are many different types of chemotherapy. They act in many different ways, but ultimately what they're trying to do is get to that DNA of the cancer cell and destroy it. Yeah. Now, many times we combine that. Now we know the immune system is very important in keeping these cancers at bay. So we combine immunotherapy with chemotherapy. Say we use antibodies that go against that cancer cell and kind of point to our immune system, hey, these are the bad guys, here they are, and our immune system go and attack that cancer. Now we have even evolved that to cellular therapy. Now we can, quote unquote, train the immune system to attack the cancer. Um, so there are many places that are offering cellular therapy now. We take the immune cells out of that person's body, they go into a lab, get trained on how to attack cancer, and then they're infused back and they're going to find their way to that cancer and start attacking them. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating field. It's very interesting how it works, but even more fascinating is how much it's helping people. And it's a technology that's very new, and that we're starting to incorporate more and more in treatment of how cancer. How long have we been doing, doing that? Well, the concept of cellular therapy has been there for many years, about 20 or 30 years. We just didn't have the technology to put that in place. Now, in around 2017 is where this technology started to get developed, uh, just only a few years ago. And now, well, now it's widely available. We're using it for many different types of blood cancers, and uh, it's evolving every time. Excellent. Well, we do have a role in about this, so I think this would be a good time. So immunotherapy, which begins with the collection of cells from the patient, can be an effective way for your body to help fight cancer. Here's Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer with more information about this therapy. When immunotherapy is the chosen cancer treatment, a phresis is the first step in preparing a patient's own cells to fight against cancer. Then we collect blood, it comes in the machine, um, it spins in a centrifuge which separates the blood cells and then we can collect a specific cell that we want. So stem cells, white blood cells, platelets, we can be very specific. Um, collect what we want and then we give everything back. Brittany Neinheis is the aphresis coordinator for Avera Health in Sioux Falls and she says aphresis is used after detecting blood cancer and fighting it by using a car T-cell drawn by their own blood. 
They take the cell and they attach a CAR, a chimeric antigen receptor, that can detect cancer in the patient. So then when they infuse that back into the patient, it can attack the cancer. Nineheis says the collection process takes around four hours to complete, and she says certain amounts of blood will be drawn depending on the patient and their doctor's prescription. It depends on the patient's height, weight, that bases it off their total blood volume. I would say a couple hundred milliliters is average. They monitor the patient's blood pressure along with calcium levels during the procedure. Our anticoagulant that we use to keep the blood from clotting in the machine can decrease the patient's calcium. So we do watch for that. First sign is numbness and tingling in the lips and fingers. And then we just give extra calcium if the patient reports any of those symptoms. Patients only have to do a freesis once. After that, a drug manufacturer handles adding the car to the T-cells and a different clinic infuses them back into the patient's body. She says using a patient's own cells has benefits. Using your own cells reduces any risk of rejection or side effects of graft-versus-host disease. Um, and then the targeted CAR-T therapy, um, very targeted to your cancer, so you have less um, general like chemo-like side effects. Well, that sounds uh, amazing that they can do that yeah. now. Um, tell us more about that. How, how do you decide to do that? Yeah. What does it treat? Absolutely. Well, let me give a little background here. That we think cancer happens in general for two reasons. We either acquire mutations and that, that cell becomes cancerous. But now we know the immune system plays a big role. Because hmm. what's supposed to happen is if there is ever any cancer cells, our immune system is supposed to detect that cell and destroy it. But now we've learned that cancer has a way to hide from the immune system, or that immune cell is just not equipped to get rid of that cancer cell. So that's where cellular therapy and immunotherapy have come to be. Specifically about cellular therapy, we just saw about it. Um, what we do is we take those immune cells out separate the blood components, we take the immune cells, we give the rest back, and then those immune cells, we go back to a lab and start training them. We give them the equipment they need to detect those cancer cells. We do that through some genetic editing, and they're now able to produce what they need. And then we infuse them back. So once they're back and they localize the cancer, now they have the tools to take care of it. We bring them together, that cancer cell and immune cell, and the immune cell starts attacking the cancer. Now, immunotherapy works a little bit different. CAR T-cell therapy is cells attacking the cancer. Immunotherapy, it's mainly about antibodies. See, this cancer cell is hiding, but that antibody is binding to it, and it's signaling the immune system to say, hey, here's the place that we need to attack. Yeah. So it engages that cancer cell with that immune cell and produces that immune response that we need. Okay. And then the body can keep reproducing those Exactly. antibodies then too? Once the immune cell is activated, those cells are going to start to divide because now we have the cell that attacks this and I need more. So that immune cell will start to divide and produce more and start attacking the cancer. So I would hope or think that this would result in a good success rate. Oh, it, it has changed a lot of lives. Now, 
before CAR T cell therapy, all we had was, well, chemoimmunotherapy, but the outcomes were not all that great. See, when a lymphoma gets chemotherapy, or a patient with lymphoma gets chemotherapy, and then that lymphoma comes back, five, 10 years ago, what we had was, well, more chemotherapy. Well, by the time we got there, that cancer has sometimes found a way around chemotherapy and become resistant. So the response rates were not all that great, were not encouraging. We're talking about 10 to 20% response rates. Well, that was because we were using the inappropriate tool. Well, now with CAR T cell therapy, we're getting about 50 to 60% response rates. And now when people respond, that response can last for years. We just talked about it. That immune cell can start dividing, produce more, and get some stores of immune cells. So if a cancer ever wants to come back, that immune cell will go attack. So those responses can last a lot longer. Now we're talking sometimes cure, of something that was incurable before. Great. It's just revolutionized the way we treat them. Excellent, how exciting. Yeah. So, and it, that's more for lymphoma? Mm -hmm. But, or leukemia too, you can use that? Or? Say lymphoma is the, one of the most common indications for it. One specific one that's called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, I guess is one of the more common. There are other ones that have indications for this, specifically follicular lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma. So there, we're starting to expand that indication in the lymphoma aspect of it. But there are others, like multiple myeloma. That's a cancer that now has cellular therapy available and has really changed uh, how we treat them. And there are some forms of leukemia. And, and what is multiple myeloma? Just oh, yes. to yep. look into that one. I was going to ask anyway. So. Yeah. Well, we have this cell called plasma cell. That's an immune cell that's supposed to create antibodies. Well, it can acquire some mutations and become cancerous, and we call that multiple myeloma. The name refers to what we were seeing um, centuries back, where there were tumors inside the bone marrow, and they were comprised of plasma cells. See, one of the common features of multiple myeloma is that we would detect an abnormal protein in per that person's blood. that used to be a normal antibody, but now has become an abnormal antibody that we can detect. So it's a cancer of these plasma cells that can spread out to the bones. Generally, it had um, chemotherapy. Many times we use stem cell transplant for it. After that, we didn't have great tools, and that's where cellular therapy for multiple myeloma is gaining traction. Speaking of stem cell transplant, we haven't really dived into that. Could you tell us yeah. about that treatment option? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's part of the same concept. We need the immune system to attack a cancer. So there's different types of stem cell transplant. A stem cell is a cell in our bone marrow that can produce immune cells. It can produce white cells, it can produce red cells, it can produce platelets. But very importantly, the immune cells that could attack cancer. So there's two different types of stem cell transplant. We call it autotransplant. So my own stem cells are taken from me. They are in store. Now I get chemotherapy to get rid of all the cancer cells. But if we stop there, I don't have any immune cells anymore. Well, that's why we don't stop there. Then we use the stem cells that I have in store and give them back. They're on my own cells. Do you put them into the bone marrow? Oh, well, now we used to, but now we are uh, putting them into circulation because they know their home very well. Mm -hmm. and then they circulate and find their way back home. And so then it can go into all the bones that have exactly. bone marrow. Yep, yeah. Wow. Our bone marrow have 
uh, sort of anchors. So they express it once a stem cell goes and recognize its home. So it goes back to the bone marrow. They circulate, but they find their way back home. And so if a patient has stem cell transplant, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, you're erasing their blood memory in yes. a way? Yeah. And now reintroducing it. And so I understand that they don't have much of an immune system for that's, a time. That's right, yes. You said it perfectly. It's kind of resetting all your immune system. We gave you high doses of chemotherapy. We got rid of the cells that you got, good guys and the bad guys. Some of your good guys have, are gone. Uh, if you test me, I'm, my immune system may have memory for, say, mumps or, or rubella. Well, with chemotherapy, some of those cells can go away. And now your immune system has to learn again how to function. So the immune system goes down for a while. It can sometimes take years before we um, gain everything back, all that memory from all those viruses in the past. So from getting those viruses or? Well, now we use vaccination to try to revamp that, that immune sure. response or that immune memory. Sometimes it has to be being exposed to them again. Sure, sure. How successful is that in treatment for, and what cancers would you use that for treatment? Yes, where we talk about autologous transplants, so my own stem cells, we use that predominantly in multiple myeloma and in some forms of lymphomas. Now we also use what we call allogeneic, so my stem cells would go into someone else. Generally, we use that for leukemias and other myeloid disorders like myelodysplastic syndromes. Those tend to be very aggressive, but some of them can be cured with a stem cell transplant. Wonderful. So if a patient is coming and, and now has a new diagnosis of leukemia, lymphoma, or multiple myeloma, or another type of blood cancer, what kind of, and, you know, and there's of course CML and some of those others that can sometimes be low yes. grade and some that can be more aggressive. That's right. So what kind of success rates or survival rates are, are we telling patients now and, and what yeah. did they used to be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, um, I would use the example of a common aggressive lymphoma. It's called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We, it's an aggressive cancer, but now we can cure about 60% of the people that have it with the combination of chemoimmunotherapy. That number may be actually increasing by the use of CAR T cells. Sure. Now there are some forms of um, leukemia, like you mentioned, that used to have 90% death rates when they were diagnosed. That was the um, situation for chronic myeloid leukemia 50 years ago. Well, now with more modern drugs, we almost have a 95% survival wow. rate yeah. for patients with chronic myeloid leukemia. Great. So things are improving a lot now. For patients with multiple myeloma, if I take you back 40 years ago, that's not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, people used to live just a couple of years. We didn't really have uh, treatments to succeed. Well, now we're talking eight, 10 years, sometimes even more than that wow. yeah. with all the treatments that we're getting. Good, good. And what makes some of these cancers recur then? Mm -hmm. Well, we're still trying to understand why. It's sometimes puzzling because people get treatment cancer goes into remission, and then for some reason, it comes back. Some of those reasons may be that cancer cell may become resistant to the treatments that we give. Uh, sometimes it's a different type of cancer within that same family that finds the way around this immunotherapy and starts to come back. 
the reality is we don't know yet, and that's what we're trying to find out. So if we find out how they become resistant, that might be a tool on how to keep it on the remission for longer. Yeah. Um, what are some of the long-term effects of having some of these cancers? Yeah. Well, I think that answer goes two ways. Well, one of the, what are the effects of having a blood cancer for a long term? And also, what are the late effects of the treatments that we give? Um, you would imagine if you have a cancer that affects your immune cells and you have that cancer for 10, 20 years, well, your immune system is probably going to go down. Some of the common things I see would be common infections, especially viral. Um, and also, there's some consequences about the treatments that we give. You heard me say chemotherapy can affect the DNA of the cancer cell, but also the normal counterparts. So for some of the chemotherapies that we give, there's a risk down the line that people could develop a second cancer, unfortunately. We're also decreasing their immune system, so infections can happen too. Some of our chemotherapies can be toxic to the heart as well. So people yeah. 5, 10, 20 years down the line may end up with heart failure caused by some of the treatments that we've given. So we have to be really careful in how do we select the treatments that we give to make sure we well, to get the most out of it without causing damage. Yeah. As a hemoc doctor, hematologist, oncologist, well, first of all, why did you choose this field? <laughs> well, I was fascinated by the science behind it. It's the, well, the immune system, how it works, and what's happening to the DNA, and what happens when, when that goes wrong. That's what attracted me to the field. But I think what's keeping me in this field is that relationship you build with your, with your patients. Um, I just really enjoy celebrating the success of a good treatment, of uh, getting rid of a cancer. Boy, that's uh, an experience I really enjoy having in my clinic, and that's, uh, that's what's keeping me here. It's that feeling of, I hope that at some point I make a difference and people will remember me as someone that helped in a very emotional, life-changing moment of a diagnosis of a cancer. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure they will. I hope so. Um, so as far as long looking ahead in, in treatments of, of, of blood cancers, what are some of the things down the road you're seeing or you know and obviously there's some things you brought up that are yeah. new already, but yes. what else is coming down the road or how are they advancing that? Yeah, I think in the close to um, midterm, we're still learning how do we combine them. So now we have cellular therapy that we used after a first or second relapse, well, how can we bring it up front? How can we achieve the best chances of a cure up front without going through this toxic treatments? How do we combine immunotherapy with cellular therapy? What's the role going to be for transplant now that we have cellular therapy? I think that's our next frontier. Now down the line, we have um, nanotechnology. Now we're going to having to see microscopic robots. Now go into the body and get rid of cancer right. directly. Now we're gonna start to incorporate artificial intelligence into the treatment. Yeah. How can we best summarize all the evidence we have in, um, in a machine that can tell me what's the best treatment for this specific patient? Yeah. And uh, targeted therapy. Now we heard me say a lot about DNA and mutations. Well now we can test some of them and come up with drugs that would target this mutation and get rid of the cancer. So it's very individualized. I think those will be our next frontiers in the next few decades. Wonderful. Um, one of the things that you're doing 
here at Avera uh, in Sioux Falls is 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 this stem cell program. Yes. And I understand it's a referral center to tell us a little bit about the program. If yes, you yes, we're a big referral center for oral or region. We do stem cell transplant, the two types we just talked about, autologous and allogeneic. We do cellular therapy, and we're expanding these indications a lot more. So we do um, about 15 to 20 allogeneic transplants per year. We do about twice that, about 50 autologous transplants per year. Cellular therapies, we're doing a 20 to 25 per year, and that's about two a month. That's a lot, that was unthinkable five years ago. Yeah. Uh, so we're a big referral center. We have a very specialized team of doctors and nurses that have been doing this for, for many years now and have acquired a lot of experience in how to do that. So it's an incredible you know, team of people that um, have gotten together to help uh, our patient population here. And it's a, a program that's expanding a lot more and then it's getting a lot more experience so we're all excited to be part of it. Yeah. Are you going to be doing outreach anywhere or yes. staying in Sioux Falls? No, no, we have a big outreach, uh, we have a big footprint so we go to um, several different areas. For some we don't go physically but we go through telemedicine visit. We yeah. have expanded our reach and how, how uh, how many people we can help in our system. So it's uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. We can reach a lot more people. Yeah, excellent. So in the final couple minutes here, um, what are some words of advice you have, and especially for some of our viewers that some of them may have just found out they have cancer? Yeah, yeah. I think the first thing I would say is there, there is hope. There's some of this treatment um, are getting a lot better, <coughs> excuse me. Um, for some of these cancers, we're not gonna be able to find a cure, but we're always gonna be able to do something. And I think that's the biggest and brightest hope we can have. I would say if you're someone that has a diagnosis of a blood cancer, trust your doctor, talk to them, tell them what you're feeling. Sometimes we're kinda focused on the treatment and we have to spend more time talking about what are the side effects. The whole goal of this technology is to well make people live longer but also help them live better. So trust them. There are a lot of resources that we have available to help you. And it's not all medications. What I mean by that is we have a big team. We have social workers that can help us figure out um, well is there any insurance problem that we have to figure out? Is there any help at home that we can get you? We have counselors. This is a very emotional time. Um, we have people that can help you and walk you through. Uh, we have physical therapies, occupational therapies. We have a big, big team of uh, people that can help. But that first step is you telling your doctor, this is what I'm going through. And I would also say if you're a family member of someone that has this disorder, support them. They need a lot of help. They're going through a lot. It's the emotional a burden of having this disease and not knowing what's next. Uh, they are also probably trying to hide some of the symptoms so you're not worried. Support them, they're going through a lot. Also, talk to your doctor, we're a big team. You know, if you see your family member is struggling with something, feel free to voice it. We have a lot of resources to help. That's some great words of advice. I can tell that you're 
very caring and you care about these patients, your patients, and and that and you have a passion for this and 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 hematology oncology, which is above my head. But you did a wonderful job uh, explaining it here, and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show and, and joining us. And hopefully, we can have you back again sometime. Oh, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, we'll be right back after this. Based on science built on trust, grab a copy of your local newspaper to read the Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Over 130 newspapers in the region carry the article. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc today. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns. Like a car racing along the interstate, exiting onto a highway, and finally reaching the family farm along a dusty gravel road, our blood circulates inside our bodies. There are the major blood vessels, such as the aorta, running out of the heart, and there are the tiny capillaries allowing blood cells one at a time to carry oxygen and nutrients to all the cells in our bodies. The network of capillaries is so complex, it is estimated there are over 40 billion in one person. And if stretched out in a single line, they would cover over 100,000 miles. Our blood is made up of a mix of liquids and solids. The liquid, plasma, is composed of water, salts, and proteins. The solids include red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. In general, the red blood cells deliver oxygen and carry away carbon dioxide, the white blood cells help fight infections, and the platelets help form clots if you get a cut. Bone marrow is the spongy material inside our bones that help make new blood cells, which only last so long. Red blood cells last about 120 days, platelets last six days, and white blood cells may last less than a day or much longer. As with any stretch of road, accidents happen. The blood can become clogged, causing a stroke in the brain or a heart attack in the heart. Sometimes what goes wrong is a problem of overproduction, causing a cancer of the blood. Leukemia is a cancer of the white blood cells. Lymphoma is a cancer of the tissues that produce and carry white blood cells. And multiple myeloma is a cancer of plasma proteins. A cancer of too many red blood cells is called polycythemia vera. While some cancers often cause the growth of a solid tumor, the overproduction of blood cells may be harder to detect. Symptoms are often vague, including fatigue, weakness, night sweats, bone pain, weight loss, frequent infections, enlarged lymph nodes, and other nonspecific symptoms. Advancements in cancer therapies have made large strides in the treatment of blood cancers. Besides chemotherapy and radiation therapies, treatments can include stem cell transplants, immunotherapies, and targeted therapies which are more specific on the molecular level to what is being overproduced. Immunotherapies include modifying T cells to recognize and attack cancer cells. The complexities of the human body are endless and amazing. Part of the wonder is how the cells in our bodies are constantly growing and being replaced. Just like our highway system, there is always construction.
Thank you very much to our guest, Dr. Andrade, for volunteering his time to help us learn more about blood cancer. I know I've learned a lot here today, too. If you would like to see and hear more episodes, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. people on the active waiting list for organs, but only approximately 14,000 deceased organ donors and 6,000 living donors. The importance of transplants, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Effective use of information is the foundation of modern public health practice. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a volunteer board member for the Healing Words Foundation, the 501c3 that supports the Prairie Doc media. Prairie Doc programming is designed to improve health literacy, including improving knowledge which is conducive to individual and community health. Founded by Rick and Joni Holm, Prairie Docs and other medical professionals volunteer many hours every week to share information based on science built on trust. Thank you for following Prairie Doc Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Plus, catch us most Thursday nights at 7 p.m on SDPB. Because of your generous donations, all Prairie Doc programming is free and available to the public. If so inclined, make a donation today. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and click the donate button. Don't wanna donate online? Send us an email and our staff will send you a pledge card in the mail. Thank you for supporting the Prairie Doc. Information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, 
Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.